0: Hello, I'm Pastor Gary Gilley. I'm the pastor of Southern View Chapel in Springfield, Illinois. And the assignment I've been given, as far as the seminar is concerned, deals with the social gospel, and I've entitled this The Social Gospel Yesterday and Today. Uh, Last year, I dealt with the social justice issue, and obviously these overlap. Uh, And uh, the social justice issues that uh, go back here recently to the Dallas Statement, John MacArthur leading a charge there, the reactions to all of that, things that happen on a regular basis in our society. Uh, that issue is not going to go away anytime soon, and it is one that we need to contemplate and discuss and examine biblically. Uh, but because I did that seminar last year, I have chosen this year to uh, back up and look at the broader base issues. I think sometimes part of our problems when we jump into these dialogues and discussions, is we're jumping in the middle of the argument, and we we don't have the basis, we don't have the foundation, we don't know the history, and often we haven't really examined the scriptures, we're simply going with what's being said today. So I think it's very important that uh, we uh, go back and take a look at history, what can history teach us, and more importantly, what does scripture have to say. Part of our problem today is that uh, most people don't know much about history, and and, and really don't believe that history can teach us very much, uh, many of the millennials and even some of the baby boomers seem to think that the church was invented somewhere in the latter part of the 20th century. And before that, there was very little that happened, very little history, very little of importance. And so even many Christian leaders and pastors and and so forth know very little about church history, uh, very little about what's happened in the past that might uh inform us about what we should be doing today. So I want to look at that with you and look at uh, some of these issues that surround that. Uh, The social justice issue is a part of this. And like I said, that issue is not going to go away. We're going to be dealing with that for a long time. Uh, The social justice movement and uh, discussion that we talked about last time wraps largely around racism, although there are other things such as the Me Too movement and things like that that are part of it. But it's largely wrapped around the racist concerns, the racial issues, the divide between uh, blacks and whites and evangelicals in that regard. All sorts of issues that, uh, I, like I said, very, very important. But I want to go back now and take a look at uh, where all this began and how the churches had to deal with it in the past. And keep in mind, this is not a brand new issue. We've always dealt with racism. We've always dealt with, with uh, social justice We've always dealt with poverty. We've always dealt with all these kinds of things. And the church has always been reacting to that or re- hopefully leading the way many times in understanding the best way forward. Right now, though, if somebody came to your church to uh, or gave you a phone call and wanted to know about your church, they might ask you, what does your church do to reach out? And in the past, up until recently, that might have been a question about evangelism. How is your church... Uh, uh, reaching out evangelistically locally, globally. Uh, what are the programs you have in place? What are you doing to reach the loss for Christ? And although that still may be part of what somebody is asking, more likely they're asking about your programs for the social issues. Uh, is your church involved in feeding the poor? Do you have a food pantry? Uh, do you work at a soup kitchen or have your people involved with that kind of a thing? Do you have a tutoring program? Uh, do you, do you have uh, these types of things where you're working with with perhaps orphanages and, and widows and, and the poor? All these kinds of issues might be what they're asking. And if your church is, does, does not have a particular direct program in these regards, uh, many of them will move on down the road because that is how they frame the church today. The church is a social agency that also includes the gospel. And so that is the kind of thing we want to look at Uh, First of all, historically, and then in a moment, biblically. And so as we begin to do that, I want to look at the social gospel of the past and what we learn from that. Let's start with the Great Awakening. We can go a lot further back than that. But in America, let's start with the Great Awakening in the 1730s, 1740s. Uh, During that time, uh, it it would appear there was a great movement of God. But one of its architects, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote a great deal about the Great Awakening and was very much a part of it, admitted that there was both a movement of the spirit of God and perhaps a movement of the flesh as well. And so he tried to dissect some of that: uh, what was of God and what was not of God, and and how do they infiltrate one another and influence one another? And uh, he he saw some overreactions, some over enthusiasm, uh, some some movements uh, that were fleshly, not biblical, not spiritual. But he thought and believed, and most people do today, that the Great Awakening certainly uh, brought a spiritual movement in America and in England in particular that has had effect even to today, and a lot of wonderful things happened at that time. But after the Great Awakening cooled off, uh, we find that the uh, people in America and England and other places also began to cool off with the Awakening, the Great Awakening had largely been a, a theological, biblical uh, movement, a turning back to the scriptures, uh, allowing the Word of God and theology to to influence and change us and direct us. Uh, the other things on the side that concerned Edwards and others were, uh, were more of the uh, collateral issues, the enthusiasm and so forth. But it seemed to truly be a movement that was theologically based. But by the 1800s, uh that it all cooled down and we found the church in america and other places was not doing particularly well there had been a, a a movement back away from uh theology from biblical teaching and from the enthusiasm for the lord some who had only read about the great awakening would like to 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 revisit that and have something in their their time as well and and so about 1800 in uh, cane ridge kentucky we have the launching of what we now call the Second Great Awakening. There were the camp meetings and the revival services and so forth that from there spread out and uh, began to make, seem to have a real movement among the, peop- uh, the people around, uh, uh, out east in particular, in, in the south, uh, where there seems to be a duplicate of the Great Awakening. But there was one major difference. Where the Great Awakening was largely theological in foundation, the Second Great Awakening was not. Uh, The the enthusiasm, the excitement, the singing, uh, all of that was incorporated, but there was a movement away from biblical teaching and theological foundations. And over time, that began to uh, weaken the church in America. Uh, It it led the way to uh, some of the other great leaders of the Second Awakening down down the line. People like Charles Finney stand out. Uh, He invented new methods and new means by which uh, he thought he could... uh, bring people to Christ, and uh, and bring about a true revival. He had many clones that spread out throughout all the countryside, uh, going from church to church, from village to village, and having revival services and evangelistic services, and often with great enthusiasm, uh, sometimes way over-the-top enthusiasm, a lot of excitement going on and so forth. And people would come to these services and by the hundreds and sometimes by the thousands. Uh, and they were excited about this. And then when the evangelists left and the people went back to their churches, it wasn't long until uh, they left their churches. It wasn't long to the social reforms such as the uh, s- closing of taverns and so forth went back to the way it was. And uh, after a while, the pastors of local churches began to realize that the people would come only when they had these enthusiastic uh, revival-type services The teaching, the careful, systematic teaching of the Word of God was not so much in vogue. And so the pastors began to learn if they wanted a crowd, they wanted people to come to church, they needed to offer pretty much what the evangelist was offering in the way of enthusiasm and uh, excitement and passion, and not so much in the way of teaching the Scriptures. Of course, I'm generalizing here. There were always people that taught the Scriptures well. And even in in those who backed away from from a systematic teaching of the, of the Bible, there was often those that, that taught portions of it or taught the gospel itself. But uh, over time, the church became more and more influenced by the enthusiasm and the excitement of the times rather than the teaching of God's Word. As a result of that, that sort of emptied out the theological uh, woodwork of the, of the church. The foundation of the church was becoming weaker as a result of lack of biblical teaching on the part of these uh, pastors and leaders. Uh, these uh, these fires of evangelism spread throughout the the region so so often and so enthusiastically that they even named some of the regions, especially in New York and some other places, they, they named them the Burnt Over District. Because after a while, after these fi- evangelistic fires had rolled through time after time after time, the people became more and more hardened to the gospel and to the things of the Lord until they came to the point that nothing seemed to move them. And even today, as we look in, uh, in that area of New England, we find that the uh, people are cold towards the things of God, perhaps more than almost any other region in, in the country. And that perhaps goes back to those times, but uh, we could debate that, I suppose. There were some, though, that pushed back. They said there were some who started a group called the Evangelical Alliance uh, because they recognized that the church was becoming mostly an enthusiastic, uh, excitable network rather than a biblical teaching uh, church and people of God. And so they pushed back and formed an alliance that had four major hallmarks. First of all, there was a belief in the inspiration and the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. So they're looking at the essentials of the faith and the inspiration and, and authority of Scripture was top of the list. Secondly, the centrality of the cross. So they wanted the gospel to be at the very heart of their message. They, they want to be very careful they did not move beyond the cross. And then thirdly, the uh, affirming the need for conversion. Not only was the gospel preached, but people needed to be converted. They needed to place their faith in Christ and, uh, and therefore become true children of God. And so that was much of what the church was about as they understood it. And then activism was the fourth hallmark. That was an activism both of evangelism and of uh, discipleship, but also a growing event, activism in the area of social agendas, uh, involving the church in trying to change society, changing the, the social structure around them and meeting social needs. So these are the four hallmarks of the Evangelical Alliance in the 1850s or so. Uh, but by the end of the century, 1894, a number of people that were involved with the alliance that were far more liberal in their theology and understanding, uh, broke away. And they, they had caused great conflict and they finally broke away at the about 1894 officially and formed their own organization known as the Open Church League that was uh, far more liberal in its bent. And ultimately, this was uh, morphed into what we call today the National Council of Churches that was formed in 1950. So if you know anything about the National Council of Churches, you know that it is a larger an ec- ecumenical, liberal, theologically group that uh, is not attempting to teach the scriptures or or enforce the four hallmarks of the alliance, but are much more liberal in their bent. Uh, the teaching for the Open Church League, the more liberal wing, was being drawn from German rationalism. So if we had more time, we would back up to the 17th century, uh, where we have uh, people like Frederick Schreiermacher and different ones who are beginning to undermine the truth of Scripture, replacing the authority of Scripture with reason in the Enlightenment and and emotions uh, in the Romanticism era. All these things were happening in Europe, especially in Germany. Many pastors and leaders were getting their degrees from Germany. They were bringing their doctrines back, and over time, that influenced greatly. A church, uh, in general, that had been gutted out of theological foundation because of the movement of the Second and Third Great Awakening, which is largely passionate, enthusiasm, but very much devoid of biblical foundation. So without the biblical foundation, the understanding of how to approach and understand Scripture, good, proper theology and hermeneutics, without that, German rationalism started to make sense. And they began to bring in the ideas that had been formed in Europe uh, some decades earlier, and they brought them to the United States by the end of the 1800s. About 1894, we see this happening, but it even goes back to about 1880 when we start seeing a real influence of German rationalism on the American Christianity. So by this point, as, uh, as German rationalism and the Romanticism and the Enlightenment began to, to remove from the people of God the Church's foundational truths, we were left with uh, not much in the way of what the church had always biblically stood for. So if the incarnation was in doubt, as it was at this time, and the scriptures were suspect, higher criticism, if you recall, what is the word of God? If theology itself was under attack, then that left social action as a mission of the church. And thus was born what we call the social gospel. So those terms often in capitalized form social gospel, was a movement that really we find pinpointed as far as its origin about 1880, but of course the roots go back further than that. So we have a church now that is becoming less and less doctrinally sound, less and less biblically oriented, and more and more activated towards social issues. And the social gospel itself began to uh, take over much of the Church of Christ at that time. Uh, church historian, David Bevington, said this, the most characteristic doctrine of the social gospels, that the kingdom of God was to be realized by social improvement, was derived primarily from German liberal Albert Ritzel. Um, as we think about that, he is basically saying that what happened in the 1800s and even prior to that, and began to infiltrate the church, as we'll see in a moment, uh, that what he says is happening then, bringing in the kingdom of God. We're seeing the very same uh, things happening today in the 21st century church and much discussion about bringing in the kingdom of God. And we'll see that as we press on here in a moment. But right now we're still looking at the history that brought us to this place. Richard Niebuhr probably said it better than anyone as he capitalized what was going on by this point. Here's what people were teaching in many of the liberal churches that were spreading and growing across the nation, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So that summarizes so very much as we find that the cardinal foundational doctrines of the church and especially the gospel had been undermined and taken out. And so we have a new Christianity altogether, really, a new form of Christianity that did not resemble the Christianity of the scriptures or the past. By the early 1900s now, most theological liberals had made social concerns central to the understanding of the gospel. Historian uh, George Marston says, while not necessarily denying the value of the traditional evangelical approach of starting with evangelism, Social gospel spokesmen subordinated such themes, often suggesting that stress on evangelism had made American evangelicalism too otherworldly and individualistic. Such themes fit well in the emerging liberal theology of the day. I want to back up for just a moment to the first part of that quote. Uh, Notice something very, very pivotal, uh, very, very insightful, and and I want you to grasp this as you think, these issues through with me, he says that while not necessarily denying the value of the traditional evangelical approach of starting with evangelism, this is important because as the social gospel spread all the way back to the 17th century, as it began to spread, there was not a wholesale rejection of the foundational cardinal doctrines of the faith. There was not a a complete jettison of the gospel. So none of the earlier uh, foundational leaders of this movement said evangelism was unimportant or unnecessary. They included it for a long time, as they did many of the other doctrines that are cardinal to the faith. But they began to minimize them, so that they became less and less significant, significant to the church and to the identification of the church And so we see the the rest of the quote that uh, that often the stress on evangelism had made American evangelicalism too otherworldly and individualistic. The point being is this. uh, In this particular time, many people were crying out and saying, our stress on the conversion of people, of drawing people to Christ upon the gospel, our stress in all of those types of things is making the Christian too otherworldly. They're concerned about leaving this planet and going to heaven, and therefore they're not concerned about the planet itself. And the uh, the liberals, the social gospel, gospel people at that time uh, were saying those things very loud and clear. As we'll see in a moment, that's exact rhetoric, almost word for word, uh, by what is being said by many leaders today in the modern social gospel movement, even those that, we would consider a far more evangelical than many of these people. But that's something to keep in mind as we press forward. Reynolds Showers observes that the liberal Protestant advocates of the social gospel declared that the church should be concerned primarily with this world. It should divert its efforts from the salvation of individuals to the salvation of society. The church was to save the world, not be saved out of it. Folks, this is a fundamental shift in understanding of the gospel and the mission of the church and the purpose of the church and the message of the church. Are we to be saved out of this crooked generation, this perverted and crooked generation, as Paul writes in his epistles? Or are we to save the planet with the idea, perhaps, that Christ will come back once the planet has been saved? Of course, theologically, this is the old post-millennial theology. That was in that was really embraced up to the World War One and even to some point up to World War Two, but theologically has lost a lot of steam, but practically, pragmatically, uh, has not. As we again will see in a moment, conservatives then had, as the century turned the twentieth, it we turned into the twentieth century. Conservatives kicked back against this social gospel, and the liberals who were beginning to infiltrate and even take over the churches and the denominations and schools. Uh, Two of the most uh, powerful attempts at doing that are the little booklets, The Fundamentals, eventually brought together in one book, uh, was put out at the earlier uh, parts of the 19th century that had many, many different authors explain what the fundamentals, the essentials of the faith were. It is from The Fundamentals, I suppose, that that the term fundamentalist came from, Uh, and that was not a fundamentalism of cultural issues, but a fundamentalism of biblical issues. What are the essential fundamental doctrines of the church? And these booklets addressed what those were in an attempt to draw the church back. Macham's great book, The Christianity and Liberalism, which still is very insightful today, Macham at this time was the Uh, the the main theologian at Princeton Seminary, just as he was going through the transition from a conservative hotbed of theology to a liberal theology, which happened officially when an official change in 1929. Machen lived through that, and he said this is so, so helpful, so profound, because he saw it in the academy. He saw it in the seminaries. He said, what is today a matter of academics? academic speculation? Begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down armies, empires. And so he was seeing in his classroom with this debate among professors and students about, about the fundamentals, about what the church is about, what the church should teach, what the church should believe. And it began with speculations and theories and, and debates and so forth. But he says, what begins there if not taken care of properly and guarded and defended, begins to pull down empires. And so he's very concerned on that. His empire was was torn down in 1929 when Princeton became the last of the Ivy League schools to uh, officially turn liberal in their theology. Machen left at that time and started two institutions, Westminster Seminary, and then later on the OPC or the... Uh, uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in his attempt to stymie this drift what we see here though is that at this particular point uh, the evangelicals the true evangelicals the conservative Christians who are now being called fundamentalists began to see that they had lost the battle the churches and the denominations and the, and the schools the organizations had all now pretty much turned liberal between 1880 and 1920. Many of them stayed on to fight the battle within those organizations, within those denominations, but many saw the handwriting on the wall and said, we have to move out. We cannot win this battle. We'll go out and start our own Bible colleges, our own seminaries, our own denomination, establish our own churches. So we see such things as the OPC. Uh, We also see in our circles the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, and and the IFCA itself, coming out of this particular movement around 1930. We see dozens of Bible colleges and seminaries started during this time. And, And all sorts of parachurch organizations, especially mission organizations, that spread the true gospel. All that taking place in the wake of this movement, starting in the late 1920s and going forward. The the colossal differences, however, between the liberals and conservatives was crystallized around the turn of the century. And so we see these two camps. This was known, by the way, as a fundamentalist-modernist controversy. There was another split, though, that was to come about three decades later, and that came between what we now call the fundamentalists and the neo-evangelicals. The the issue was, how do we uh, reach the culture? Uh, The fundamentalists, after the great movement away from liberalism, wanted to basically stay with the gospel, stay with their churches, stay with their organizations, tell people about Christ, bring them out of the world, convert them, disciple them. That was their thrust. Some of the evangelicals, and at that time called new evangelicals or neo-evangelicals, however, wanted to engage culture. They didn't want to hide out in their, their cultural subdivisions our biblical subdivisions and subcultures. They wanted to reach the culture. They wanted to tell people, uh, they, they wanted to go out and change a culture. They wanted to engage culture. They wanted to, to change the political scene. They wanted to, to change science. They wanted to change the schools. And they wanted to go after these uh, cultural things. And so there was a division in the works between whether or not the church is called to change culture engage culture, even make culture, or was a church more a subculture that called people out of the world into the culture of Christianity, discipling them for Christ. And lots of moving parts there. But it all came to a head about 1957 over Billy Graham. Billy Graham had moved more and more towards ecumenical evangelism. And in 57, he was having a, a very a powerful uh, wide, uh, widely accepted ev- evangelical revival meetings in New York, and many of the people that were supporting him were Catholics and liberals. And the fundamentalists said we can no longer handle that, and so they split off, uh, probably officially right about here, 1957, and uh, and went separate directions. Billy Graham became kind of the, the the face on the movement at the time. The fundamentalists all but demonized Billy Graham because of his ecumenical movements and his ecumenical compromises, the evangelicals uh, made him their poster boy. And so there was this going on in the 50s that really made a great difference in evangelicalism. Since that time, the um, the church, uh, the, these two movements, these two branches, have probably, uh, up until more recently, kind of spread apart. And the evangelicals were much better organized, much better bankrolled, uh, much at at better uh, magazines and and organizations and so forth, and they today have become much more prominent in the conservative or semi-conservative circles than the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists themselves uh, have still stayed with their their task of discipleship and evangelism, but but they too now are moving perhaps more and more toward the evangelical understanding. John Armstrong, and I'm not a John Armstrong fan particularly, but he had a very good uh, statement here concerning what's going on. He said, At the root, however, is a question of how to engage the culture without losing one's soul. Fundamentalism feared losing its soul and did not engage the culture. Evangelicalism feared being different from the culture and is in danger of losing its soul. I think that's a statement well worth pondering for everyone who's thinking this through. Today, the social agenda is uh, headed up by a number of things. I'd like to look at some of the leading lights in pushing forward the social gospel today, the social agenda. And I want to start with the Lausanne movement, which began in the 1970s. Their mission statement is this, the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. This was uh, officially organized by John R.W. Stott and Billy Graham. They've had uh, four different meetings, I believe, now, uh, official meetings throughout the decades, and they are bringing churches and Christian leaders from all over the globe to these great uh, congresses, they call them, to discuss these issues. And there's, their, their driving statement is this one. And it's very important to notice that the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. Now, when you unpack that, what in the world does that, does that mean? Well, the whole church under the Lausanne movement is all those who name the name of Christ. And so coming together at these congresses, speaking at them and so forth, working together would be Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Pentecostals, conservative Christians, evangelicals, and, and everything in between from all over the whole world. The whole gospel, what is that? How's, how does that differ? from just the gospel. The whole gospel, as we'll see in a moment, is not uh, some kind of full gospel uh, idea from Pentecostalism, but the idea that the gospel encompasses two prongs, as I like to call it. The, The biblical, evangelical, evangelistic gospel of conversion and the gospel of converting society or culture or the social gospel. Those two gospels have been blended together and they're calling that the whole gospel, and they're taking it to the whole world. Now, what do they mean by that? Here's here's what is on their website. The whole world means becoming empowered by the Holy Spirit to alleviate world suffering brought about by economic injustice, disease, environment, and poverty. So notice very carefully on this statement, uh, the Lausanne folks do not eradicate the biblical gospel. They do not say it's not important, although there's many, many understandings of what that gospel is, as you kind of guess, by those who are involved in the movement. Many different views on the gospel itself. But they're also saying on their website that the whole world, what they're trying to do is empower uh, the, be empowered by the Spirit to alleviate social issues, social problems, social injustice. Disease and poverty and so forth. Environmentalism. These are all part of the, uh, of the whole gospel being taken to the whole world. So we see the agenda put out by Lausanne, which is a, a one that leads many people. Now the question at hand, by the way, is not if Christians should pay, play a responsible role in society, nor if we should denounce evil and injustice. So please take, don't take that too far. Because Christians are citizens of this planet. As we'll see in a moment, we're light and salt in this world. And we have a role to play, an important role to play uh, in the area of evilness and injustice and and, and the things that plague our our world. So we're not saying that we are indifferent to those things at all. But whether or not evangelism and social political involvement are both part of the Christian duty. And if so to what extent? Have we been called to both evangelism and discipleship and social political change of our culture? That's the debate. That's the issue. On the side of the change of the world on a social agenda of including in our gospel the prong of social change, we have some people that until at least recently would have been considered very much more in our camp theologically. Francis Chan is one of those. Now, Chan has moved a great distance from when he wrote Crazy Love and is now heavily involved in, in the Pentecostal movement and so forth, and he's teaching a very different message than he did before. But we saw back many uh, years ago when he wrote Crazy Love, these things, he says that, that the, the Christians are to live as simply as possible in order to give more toward the alleviation of suffering in the world, and change your reputation of his bride in America. So so his thought is this. Part of the gospel message, part of the gospel mission for the church is the alleviation of suffering. And as Christians give more to the poor, as Christians give more to alleviate social injustices, as we, as we gear our attention to those things, uh, we not only spread the good news, so we change the reputation of the church in America. David Platt in his book, Radical, is not quite as radical as Chan, but we see the same agenda. He says, as we meet needs on earth, we are proclaiming a gospel that transforms lives for eternity. And so he's rolling into our mission, the meeting of the social needs on the planet, the benevolent uh, mission of meeting needs of poverty, digging wells in Africa, taking care of the environment, and all that, as important as that is, and yet if we see that Platt is rolling that in to the mission and the message of the church, and it's important to see that distinction, it's not that these things are not important. It's not that the, the child of God is to turn a deaf ear towards suffering of others and injustices, But the question is, is that part of the mission and the message of the church? Uh, Kevin Young and Greg Gilbert, in their book, What is the Mission of the Church?, I think sums it up pretty well. He said, if you're looking for a picture of the early church giving itself to creation care, plans for societal renewal, and strategies to serve the community in Jesus' name, you will not find them in Acts. But if you're looking for preaching, teaching, And the centrality of the word, this is your book. What they're pointing out in this little book, which is uh, written a few years ago now, is that if if we're going to the the scriptures, and we'll do that in just a moment, if you're going to the scriptures to get your marching orders for what the church is to do, you're not going to find the social agenda in the Bible. You're not going to find it in the book of Acts. You're going to find something very different. You're going to find something that has been understood for centuries by God's people the preaching the teaching and the centrality of the word Tim Keller though in his book he's one that would definitely uh, represent a social gospel added to the biblical gospel he says in his book the reason for God which is an apologetic book that has some helpful things in it but he quotes N.T. Wright who uh, everybody seems to love this guy today and yet he doesn't even have a biblical gospel message. But he quotes N.T. Wright in support of his view, and he says this, The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. He goes on, If Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. Easter means that a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic. God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Now, these are very fancy words and well-written, but basically he is saying this, it is the task of the church to bring about the victory of Christ on this planet. Christ won the victory at the cross and the resurrection but it is now the job of the church to implement it and bring in the kingdom of God for Christ. Tim Keller said, The purpose of Jesus' coming is to put the whole world right to renew and restore the creation, not to escape it. It is not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to the world. The work of the Spirit of God is not only to save souls, but also to care and cultivate the face of the earth, the material world. So we have the two-pronged gospel pretty clearly expressed here. Uh, we, are, we do have personal forgiveness and peace with God, but we're also to bring about a, a, a spirit of, of peace with the world. We are to save not just, our, just souls, but to cultivate the earth. N.T. Wright says this, As soon as we understand what I just quoted from Tim Keller, As soon as we get that right, as soon as we understand there is a two-pronged gospel, we uh, as soon as we get this right, we destroy at a stroke, one stroke, the disastrous dichotomy that has existed in people's minds between preaching the gospel on the one hand and what used to be called loosely social action or social justice on the other. So he's broken down the wall between preaching the biblical gospel and the social gospel. He sees them as one and the same. He sees them as, as two prongs of the one gospel. And so we are to be doing both as the church, according to N.T. Wright. Matter of fact, his, uh, his whole uh, theology, if you read his books, and he has a new one out right now, his whole theology is basically this. We're not to tell people how to escape this earth and go to heaven. We're to tell people how to bring heaven to earth. And although he has a point that Christianity is far more, far richer, far more robust than simply telling people how to go to heaven when they die, uh, at the same time, it includes that message that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. Ultimately, we will live on this planet, a new creation that the Lord will, will bring in. We'll live with the Lord here with him, but it will be his creation, not ours. And N.T. Wright and Keller and many who are in the social Gospel movement today don't seem to get that. Rick Warren doesn't seem to get it either. He has a peace plan that kind of haven't heard a whole lot about that lately, but he had this anacronym. He says, Peace promotes reconciliation. Uh, that's what P does. E means equip servant leaders. A, assist the poor. C, care for the sick. And E, educate the next generation. Originally, the first letter of the anacronym for peace stood for plant churches. When he removed that, what we have here is nothing different than something uh, a Bill Gates or other secular organizations might do, simply helping the systems in the world, the problems in the world, fixing some of the things that are going wrong in our world system. He sees that as the task of the church and has initiated his peace plan to motivate and organize the church to do exactly that. Moving further astray, we come to Rob Bell, who at one time seemed to be a conservative Christian. A lot of people followed him, but uh, now today, uh, I don't even know where he is. New Ager might be a good name for him, but originally he was one of the leaders of the Emergent Church, which is now defunct as a movement, but the ideas have infiltrated many Christians. He said, for Jesus, the question wasn't, how do I get into heaven, but how do I bring heaven here? The goal isn't escaping this world, but to make this world the kind of place God can come to. So though he was, he's far out there compared to some, you see him saying the exact same thing that NT Wright says, same thing Tim Keller says, same things Francis Chan says. Uh, we're trying to bring heaven to earth as well. So this brings us to uh, the message. We're looking now at the mission of the church. Uh, We have seen what what the mission of the church is if we have a two-pronged gospel. But that uh, brings us back to the issue, what is our message? So I want to look at that with you more through the biblical lens than the historic lens that we've been looking at so far. We'll start with the National Council of Churches. It states that the central moral imperative of our time is the care of the earth as God's creation. So that's the liberal view of our task as a church take care of this world. Brian McLaren, a modern-day liberal, who was one of the key leaders of the emergent church movement at one point, said this, he believes Jesus' message was, has everything to do with poverty, slavery, and a social agenda. So it's not about justification from sin. It's about poverty and slavery and social justice, saying the same thing. For those who are in the more conservative camps who are arguing for a two-pronged mandate, a two-pronged message, where the gospel includes not only the biblical message found in scripture, but also a social message as well, what biblical arguments are they using? Now, these folks didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll start a new movement. They examined scriptures and came up with arguments to support their view. There's lots of them, but I want to give you probably the three primary arguments that I have found in my reading of these folks. Number one, Old Testament Israel. What did Israel do? And so they go back and they look and they're right. As we read throughout the Old Testament, God is concerned that Israel is a people of justice. And God is against injustice. God is concerned about the poor. And he he, he set up a number of mechanisms to take care of the poor in Israel. Uh, He is concerned about the widows and orphans. You can't read much of the Old Testament without seeing God's concern there. And the hungry. God told people to feed the hungry and take care of these types of people. uh, Let me back up for just a moment before I move on, though. Uh, As as we look at that, we see that, uh, that the Old Testament Israel was to be concerned about these things. The Old Testament scriptures uh, give this to us as well. And so those who believe in a social gospel as part of the full gospel, uh, the whole gospel, uh, believe that Israel sets the agenda and the Old Testament teaches us that we should add this social agenda to the biblical agenda for our mission and our message. Charles Ryrie notes, however, that the Old Testament does not command the establishment of justice in the world, nor the care of all the poor and oppressed in the world. It is much more isolationist than the New Testament, but it does show God's love for justice and holiness in personal living. So we have to look at that carefully. If we're looking to Israel as a template for how we are to spread social justice and, and take care of benevolent issues globally, we're looking at the wrong people. Israel was never told to go out and change the societies around them, to, to reach out to them in, in this social way and change their cultures. But God was concerned about Israel and the and the righteous living within Israel. Ryrie goes on to say in the Old Testament no provisions were made for the destitute living throughout the world no social outreach to surrounding nations can be found. And so we would have to say that looking to Israel as our model of how the church is to exist today, what their mission is, what even their message to a large degree is looking at the wrong place. A second argument is the salt and light metaphors found in Matthew chapter 5. John R. W. Stott says this, like salt in meat, Christians are to hinder social decay. Like light in prevailing darkness, Christians are to illumine society and show it a better way. And what he has to say there is correct. The issue is, and we'll look at it briefly in a moment, how are we to go about doing that? We are to be salt and light in this world. By being salt and light, we do have an effect on culture. How do we go about doing that? Francis Chan says, non churchgoers tend to see Christians as takers rather than givers. When Christians sacrifice and give wildly to the poor, that is truly a, a light that glimmers. The Bible teaches that the church is to be light, that sign of hope and increasing dark uh, and hopelessness in uh, a hopeless world. In other words, the more we try to alleviate suffering and poverty and so forth as Christians, the more we shine our light in a dark world. So his agenda is almost totally here social. The more we we fix the problems in society, the more the world will like us and the more our light will shine. And a third primary argument that I see often is that we have the cultural mandate. And the cultural mandate seems to be accepted even by those who are much more conservative than some of the ones I'm talking about here. And it seems to be accepted without really examining what it is. And so what these folks are saying is that the Christian has two mandates. We have the great commission in which we are to go forth and make disciples by teaching uh, these folks what Jesus message is. And we have the cultural mandate in which we are to take care of the planet based upon what happened in, in the ancient time in, in the first chapter of Genesis. Without taking the time to do that, you can go back and look at Genesis twenty six and twenty eight, where the Lord sends Adam forth, Adam and Eve forth, to fulfill to fill the earth with children, to subdue the earth, to cultivate the earth. This is the cultural mandate that many feel are still a uh, lot is alive and well today. Matter of fact, Nancy Percy, who has written some very good apologetic books, buys into the cultural mandate. She says, "Our calling." is not just to get to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, special grace, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation, common grace. Now, said that way, we can see a lot of truth there. Uh, We're not just trying to save souls so they can get to heaven. Uh, We're not just ignoring the planet and the needs around us. But the issue is do we have a do we have a cultural mandate that tells us that we are not only to live as salt and light in the world and to tell people the gospel to to pull people out of a crooked and perverted generation but also to subdue the earth and to cultivate the earth in the same way that Adam and Eve were told to do so Let's take a real quick look at these at these uh mandates uh arguments. How should God's commands to Israel be viewed for our age? I've already touched on this, but the Jewish civil laws still, the question is, are the Jewish civil laws still applicable to the New Testament church? And if they are, how are they to function in the church age? And quite frankly, folks, as we look at at the Old Testament system, under the law of Moses, there is no way the church can duplicate that. When we come to the New Testament, we find numerous verses of Scripture that talk about taking care of the poor, widows, the hungry, orphans, and so forth. But we find them all in the context of taking care of the people of God, not meaning that we are not concerned about the poor and the needy and the marginalized people around us. But the basic thrust, the basic mandate given to the church is the attention of God's people, just like it was in the Old Testament where Israel was concerned about God's chosen people, the Jews. So it's very difficult to pull that out and and make what is taught Israel a direct correlation between that and the church. What about Jesus' salt and light metaphors? William Henderson, this wonderful commentator who had no axe to grind in this argument, Uh, In his commentary on the salt and light metaphors, does a wonderful job of explaining them. He says, Salt, then, has especially a negative function. It combats deterioration. Similarly, Christians, by showing themselves to be Christians, indeed, are constantly combating moral and spiritual decay. Light, on the other hand, has a positive function and shines openly publicly. Now, since it is the business of the church to shine for Jesus, it should not permit itself to be thrown off its course. It is not the task of the church, here he goes, to specialize in delivery and deliver all kinds of pronouncements against or concerning economic, social, and political problems. The primary duty of the church, and he's drawing this from the New Testament scriptures, remains the spreading forth of the message of salvation that the lost may be found, that those found may be strengthened in the faith and God may be glorified. And so he's going back to the biblical teaching of what the church's message and mission is. In truth, if we live out exactly what he says here, if if we draw people to Christ by preaching the biblical gospel, if we disciple them to live righteously and godly on this earth and strengthen them in the faith, if we teach them that that their highest priority is to glorify God, the church usually and often has a powerful impact on society. Not always. In some cases, the church is persecuted and marginalized and, and eradicated. In some places that has happened. But often, we have a very positive effect on our culture as more people come to Christ and truly, biblically, Walk with Him. But our call is not to alleviate suffering and uh, take care of the poor and dig wells in Africa and alleviate physical suffering and to change political, social agendas in order that we might reach people for Christ and change our society directly, but to do it indirectly by being salt and light, living for Christ in the world. Is a cultural mandate still in effect? I do not think so for two reasons. First of all, it was given only once in Scripture, and that was before the fall in Genesis chapter 1. By the time we get to Genesis 9, this the closest thing we ever get to a repeat of the mandate, we now have Noah's family still being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. But we also have them no longer uh, being friendly with animals and, and leading animals, but eating animals. And animals are afraid of them, and they're afraid of animals. Secondly, I, I reject the cultural mandate because of the details of the mandate itself. Adam and Eve were called to subdue something. What were they called to subdue? They, 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 were, they were sinless themselves at this point. The Garden of Eden was without sin. The world had no sin. What were they to subdue? And I believe the answer to that is is the coming temptation to uh, by Satan himself to, for them to follow him and rebel against God. They were to resist that. That is what they were called to subdue, I believe. They failed at that, and Satan is now given the title, the god of this age. Michael Horton, who I don't agree with on a number of issues, nevertheless, again, I think has hit the, hit the nail on the head. He said, terrorism, global warming, and AIDS are problems we need to address as responsible human beings together with non-Christians in our common life together. I agree with that. As Christians, as citizens on this planet, along with non-Christians, we have a responsibility to this planet. However, and he's right here, the Great Commission is not the great cultural mandate. If we could resolve the top 10 crises in our world today, we would still have the devil on our back, sin mastering our heart, and an everlasting death as the penalty. And so his point is, we have much bigger agenda than simply solving the issues that the cultural mandate addresses. Charles Ryrie said, the Christians' primarily primary responsibilities are evangelism and godly living. Through witnessing, he changes people. Through godly living, he does affect society, and through private and public obedience, he honors God. The Young and Gilbert say, that in all of our passion for renewing the city or tracking social problems, we run the risk of marginalizing the one thing that makes Christian mission Christian, namely making disciples of Jesus Christ. We believe the church is sent into the world to witness to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of all nations. This is our task. This is our unique and central calling. And I I agree with that totally. We're running low on time here, but but if you look at the New Testament instructions to individual Christians, we find as we go through the Bible, through the New Testament, we are to be salt and light. When we look at Jesus's example of salt and light, we see him very concerned about the poor. We see him healing people. We see him having compassion. We see him dealing with all sorts of situations, but we don't find him dealing with these things so much directly. He doesn't start a social justice movement. He doesn't have soup lines. He doesn't start orphanages or hospitals or anti-poverty programs. These all have their place. But it isn't what Jesus did. And we need to be careful to look at what Jesus did and why he did it. When Jesus commissioned his disciples, he does not send them forth to heal the world's problems, but to make disciples and teach Jesus to obey his, his teachings in God. What commandments do disciples Are are we to obey? When we look at the scriptures, we see both examples and direct teachings. In the book of Acts, we see the church going forth. We see believers being instructed in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and scattering to evangelize. There is no example of the early Christians attempting to transform or create culture. The epistles are focused towards establishing truth and combating error, correcting false living, and uh, leading Christians into godliness. Society is seldom addressed, but when it is, the emphasis is on us being excellent representatives of Christ in the world, salt and light in this world. Christians are taught to care for the Christian poor, to handle their own legal differences, to discipline the rebellious people, not those in the world. Christians are told to treat their employees fairly. And and in first John three and James two has implications perhaps for unbelievers. But especially for Christians as well. The church as a body comes together then to worship God, receive the instruction of the word, the Lord's Supper, and body life. And so the conclusion is the church, as the church, has never given the task of transforming or creating culture. Its sole biblical mandate to the world was to make disciples. Christians as individuals are to be salt and light in the world. New Testament example and precept. Is to disciple people for Christ, which includes evangelism and training in the Word. What is the mission of the church? Well, I think biblically it's pretty simple. The mission of the church is is not to address all the needs of all people. It's much more limited in scope. It is to evangelize, meet people's needs, and transform society. Is it all of those things? All of those things? No. It's much more focused than that. It is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, it is to care for the needy in its midst. And historically, when we've lost that tension, when we when we have untethered or, or, or tried to tether the gospel, the true gospel, with a social gospel, it has proven impossible for the church to keep the biblical mandate of the Great Commission in balance with the so-called cultural mandate. We, the social gospel in the 1800s swallowed up the church of that day and ultimately gutted the evangelical church of the gospel and turned it into a social agency. I think the same thing is happening in the 20th and 21st century. It happened in the 20th century with the liberal churches. It's happening today in the new wave in the 21st century. I hope this is helpful. You can see more concerning these things and all the material about this, all the footnotes and documentation on our website, tottministries.org or svcchapel.org. Thank you, and I hope this is helpful.